we're not talking about like some obscure small minority group. We're talking about almost 50% of the population. Welcome to HVIC Talks, a podcast produced by the Human Factors Interest Group at the University of Toronto. HVIC is the student chapter of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society at U of T and consists of students, faculty, and local professionals who are interested in the field of human factors. Hi, my name is Chelsea, and I'm the president of HVIG. My name is Dina, and I'm HVIG's treasurer. Chelsea and I are lucky to be among an amazing group of women who make up HVIG's executive team. So in this episode, we wanted to talk about women and human factors. Compared to other fields of engineering, human factors does generally have better representation of women, but we still have a long way to go until our work in this field is truly equitable, both in terms of the research that we're doing and the people who are doing it. We interviewed Dr. Sarah Coppola, an assistant teaching professor at the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington, and Dr. Tara Cohen from Cedars-Sinai, who is the Director of Surgical Safety and Human Factors Research, and a research scientist and assistant professor in the Department of Surgery. We talked to our guests about their experiences as women in human factors, how we could better promote women in the field, and how we could address some of the challenges to making our field more equitable and inclusive. So here's our conversation with Dr. Coppola and Dr. Cohen. Hi, I'm Sarah Coppola. I am an assistant teaching professor at the University of Washington in Human Centered Design and Engineering. Um, so I originally studied mechanical engineering and user-centered design, and um, so like was very interested in how people used the things we were designing. A high school teacher for a year with AmeriCorps. And then I worked as an engineer at Hewlett Packard for two years making, um, making printers. And the combination of things that happened, I realized I was more interested in how, in the product failures that were related to a user than I was in the actual mechanical system failing. And I got hurt at work. Um, so it was a combination of things with um, what was misdiagnosed as carpal tunnel syndrome. It was not carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> I'll give away that story right away. And so in the midst of that, it was like thinking about doing graduate school in human factors. Um, started out in engineering education, actually. And uh, my first year of grad school uh, by the end of the year, every single person in first year psych psychology statistics was wearing a wrist brace. So I started asking why. And the thing we all had in common is we were all small women and all of the psych students had sat in the same room. They all had the same MacBook and at this fixed height desk that was just attached to the wall and more or less the same chairs. And so I switched my research to physical ergonomics, trying to ask this question of why it is that women get hurt more by technology. Like we clinically see this difference. We don't understand why. Although the answer is like most things in human factors, right? We're quantifying the obvious that it's that like the things don't fit you. They're not designed for you. And so from there, decided to stay in grad school, did a doctoral degree and um, tried to really look at the exposure differential at like the actual human machine system level biomechanics for um, mostly input devices really looked at like hand hand input devices for computer technology it's so interesting hearing about sarah's um, interests and backgrounds because as a small female i've certainly been impacted by a lot of these different things I actually uh, unrelated to like a work 
injury, but I broke both of my wrists um, at the same time. And so learning how to navigate the world around me in two casts was incredibly difficult. Um, and so this story resonates with me, especially given that my background isn't really in physical ergonomics. Um, it's more so in cognitive ergonomics, but um, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But Sarah, I'm just so impressed by what you do and your story is really interesting. So I'm excited to learn more. Um, but again, for everybody, my name is Tara Cohen, and I'm the Director of Surgical Safety and Human Factors Research at Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is in Los Angeles. Um, I, was actually grew, I actually grew up in Seattle, so I'm jealous that you're at the University of Washington, and always, always I'm excited to hear from people who are there. Um, I'm also a research scientist and assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at Cedars, and my research really spans across a few areas that aim to identify opportunities to improve safety, efficiency, and well-being for those individuals in healthcare. So uh, for the past few years, I've been primarily focusing on studying workflow disruptions or deviations from the natural progression of tasks in various surgical procedures. And my pathway to human factors was a little interesting. Um, I was first introduced to the field by my friend and first flight instructor. So I got my pilot's license um, when I was 19 and my flight instructor at the time was, you know, telling me about her interest in aviation and kind of trying to improve safety and efficiency in the field. And she had ended up, ended up working at the Federal Aviation Administration. And um, I was working on my pilot's license during college. So I was studying psychology and kind of saying, you know, I love aviation, but I love psychology and I'd love to figure out how to marry the two. And she said, you know, there's this field called human factors and I think you might be really interested in it. So why don't you come do an internship at the FAA and see if this is something you're interested in? So I did that and I, I finished my internship and I was like, okay, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do human factors in aviation. That's my entire life. So I applied to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University thinking natural fit. And the guy I wanted to work with um, after I got accepted said, you know, aviation's great. I still do a lot of work in aviation, but I'm transitioning into just focusing on healthcare. So if you want to work with me, um, you're going to start doing some healthcare work. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't know any differently. So um, I kind of jumped into the healthcare arena with no information, but totally fell in love because healthcare can really benefit like a lot of different industries and fields from the application of human factors and um, have been doing work in the healthcare arena ever since. Yeah, I forgot to say I did my post my postdoc in healthcare looking at oh, okay. in the anesthesia safety mm -hmm. in, yeah, in the operating room. Okay, very cool. Anesthesiologists are so interesting. Such a fascinating user group. Yeah. Absurd amount of working memory. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, our next question after that was um, whether you could talk about your experiences as a woman in the field of human factors. I can go. <laughs> Um, so for me, I don't think the field of human factors is inherently different than research and academia in general when it comes to being a female in the field, at least from my personal experience. Um, over the course of my graduate career, most of the people I directly collaborated with were male. 
uh, I completed my graduate studies at a male dominated university. I think female students make up less than 25% of the student population at Embry-Riddle in particular. Um, and while our program had probably the highest ratio of female professors and students compared to the other departments on campus, we, we kind of considered ourselves female island and male world. Um, I was working with a lot of male advisors and uh, male colleagues. My dissertation committee consisted of four males and one female. And while my experience was quite positive, I still had to learn how to navigate in a very male-dominated environment. And it wasn't a bad thing, but it's kind of, you know, trying to, you look around and everyone around you looks a certain way and, you know, has a has a way of expressing themselves or responding to emails or engaging in conversations that's just different than what you're used to. And so I think it was learning how to navigate that. That was a little bit challenging, but I was really, really lucky that I have had female role models in male dominated industries, which kind of gave me, I don't want to say a leg up, but insight into that world and how to behave and how to operate. You know, like I said, my first flight instructor who introduced me to the FAA was female um, and she was able to hold her own very well at a very male dominated institution. And my mentor, um, I did an internship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And my mentor there was Susan Hallbeck, who's the past president of HFES. And she was just such a phenomenal mentor and never made me question if women should or shouldn't be in leadership roles. And so I think I was very lucky that I had female role models to kind of blaze the trail ahead um, and give me a, a model for which to aspire to. And I'd say that things got a little tougher as I started my career in healthcare. Um, surgery like aviation is also highly male dominated um, and it's it's a field full of some of the hardest working most intelligent people that i've ever met but it can be really difficult to assert yourself and demonstrate your competence and capabilities among surgeons in particular i'm sure sarah can attest to feeling the same way around anesthesiologists um, but you know again i was really lucky that my boss who's the chair of surgery um, and really well respected and as a surgeon encouraged and often demanded my involvement, which really helped to, I think, give me the courage to step in and demonstrate that I was competent and had the skill set to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. So, you know, I think it doesn't mean that I didn't have challenges. I certainly did, but I, I definitely leaned on the people that I had as role models. So for me, my experience has been positive, but it's also been learning how to navigate these environments as well. Yeah, I also had very few women um, across my education, though my graduate school programs were both almost entirely women students, all of the faculty were men. And um, at Harvard, the like, uh, my department was started by the first female professor ever at Harvard, and still they had just tenured their first ever woman professor uh, in 100 years of that department. So it was like 60 professors and three women were tenured track, one was tenured. Uh, the rest were almost entirely white men, actually. And so it was just a very weird dynamic, but you see that in English departments and psychology departments too, where all of the students are women, all of the professors are men, right? So there's still this power issue going on. And um, 
because I did my doctoral work in women's occupational health. I can talk a lot about that, why that happens. But the, <laughs> the, uh, for me, I, it struck me one point that when I was going to write my acknowledgement section in my dissertation, I was not going to name a single woman despite writing a dissertation on women. And so recruited some undergrad engineering majors to work on my projects and made sure I was the TA for the one woman professor uh, in my department. So that like I would have that, um, but I really didn't have female mentors at all. And uh, until my postdoc, one of my PIs in my postdoc was a woman. And then now I am in a, I'm on a faculty that is 60% women and it is absolutely bizarre to be in that situation, just it's very strange to me. So yeah, to the, like we have enough that we can start talking about these things and advocating for issues like family leave, um, things that disproportionately affect women. Yeah, I can relate to the, the fact, like being in a female majority undergrad degree I went I did my undergrad in uh, cognitive neuroscience in the psychology department so almost all of the students in my classes were female um, I think all of my psychology professors were men and my master supervisor um, was a man but Dina and I are both lucky enough that um, we have a really great supervisor really great female mentor but that being said, I would say it's not the norm, probably for most um, grad students even. Yeah, I think my experience was a little bit different. I mean, my undergraduate degree was in electrical and computer engineering. So it was mostly male dominated uh, in terms of the students and the faculty. Um, but then, and then I worked for a while in the technology sector. So I was a software developer. So that was also mostly a male dominated field. I did have some uh, co-workers and supervisors who were female, but it was mostly men. And then really when I did go into human factors or when I did discover human factors, that was the, the one time or that was when I started being involved in a field that was actually like more balanced basically. And I did have, um, a wonderful master's advisor and I'm currently working with a wonderful PhD advisor, both of whom are women. So, and I think our lab is mostly female dominated. We do have some male uh, colleagues, but most of the students and postdocs in our lab are women. So I feel like uh, we're both very lucky. I think it's also interesting that like my perception and maybe it's because our lab is a little bit more maybe like gender balanced than other labs are. But my perception is kind of like human factors is a little bit more balanced in that way, but maybe it's just like in comparison to all of these other fields. Yes, it is more balanced, but it isn't balanced. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you have to look at who's in power, like who are senior and who's in power, right? Yeah. With all of these things. And, and so, think we are almost gender balanced, but that doesn't mean like the, the people who have the power are, are equal. And then I, I also look at it. Um, so I'm on the HFES diversity committee and the women's committee and the disability, like uh, these are I, like, this is what I do. I study and I teach, right. Is that it's white women 
who have made it, right? And so we're still, we're like, it's not all women who have been um, able to achieve those, the, the few positions of power that are held by women are often, you know, there's other, all these other aspects of identity that are intersecting there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess kind of building on that, what are some of the things that you think could be done to promote women and human factors um, or in research in general? Um, or are there any things that have been done that you thought were particularly effective? So one thing that keeps coming up uh, is research participants should be as close to parity as possible unless there's a real reason not to, right? So if you're studying testicular cancer, I understand that you didn't recruit a whole bunch of people who were assigned female at birth. But every time I'm asked to review a paper on upper extremity ergonomics or biomechanics, and you've only recruited 12 men between the ages of 18 and 23, right? I have like, we can't, we have to stop. Those should be getting benched, rejected. Um, I, it, there's no excuse at all to not recruit some form of, you know, I realize that it is hard to get a diverse population and it's, we have small N in biomechanics, but we're not talking about like some obscure small minority group. We're talking about almost 50% of the population, right? And so like, and I mean like 49.9% of the population, right? So it's like, we're not like, and I, I mean, I was looking, I was chasing a reference um, from Journal of Biomechanics that showed, it was actually a conference that like 80% of participants that have, studies that have been published are men only, are men, right? The authors are all men, right? Like, so they have this like massive gender bias. And then clinically we see all these injuries. Um, and that's not, and then like, that's, I'm talking about physical injuries, not even like, like and then the psychosocial stuff is really important too. The, so that's one thing is like, we need to reject this as bad science. Like I shouldn't have to explain to you that women are people too at this point in time. Um, and then like thinking about the context. So Karen Messing talks about this a lot. She said, uh, she wasn't, uh, you are Canadian and I'm gonna mess up the name of the school, but somewhere in Montreal. And this idea that women have meant multiple roles and they're always intersecting. And so thinking about how, right, the, the multiple roles that like society puts on women, how that affects their career. And so like when human factors in ergonomics is over Halloween, right? That probably disproportionately affects mothers and it affects fathers too and non-binary parents, right? But like the, the, the cultural social heart or like cost of parenting is often on women. And we look differently at women who who miss a holiday than we do at men who miss a holiday, right? And so those sorts of things. Um, is there access to a place to breastfeed? If you bring your child with you, can you bring your child with you? Like, will you be, you know, what is the environment like for those sorts of things? So like the more like thinking about these conflicting roles, thinking about like elder care, right? Is also often done by women. And so like right now is like pub, like seeing the drastic differences in who's publishing in the last year, right? There's a massive gender difference. There's also been a massive gender difference in who's dropping out of the labor market, right? And so how, like understanding that complexity of factors, I think is really important. 
That was so well said. And um, your point about research and publishing made me think of, did you guys hear of the med bikini thing yeah. that happened? So for Chelsea and Dina um, and Sarah, feel free to jump in because you may remember it better than I do, but uh, it was in the summer of 2020, an article came out um, looking at professionalism of physicians uh, based on their social media pictures. And essentially, um, the criteria for what was or was not professional was different for women versus men. So if a woman was in a picture in a bathing suit, she lost a point of of being professional. So she lost a professionalism point. Um, and basically, that same criteria wasn't withheld for men. And the article came out and it was written by all men, um, basically deeming that the females were more unprofessional than the males. And, and this was such a, there was a huge gender gap in, in the entire paper. And I believe the authors even, um, they came out and apologized and then re requested to retract their study. But it's a really interesting example of inequality and where we've gone wrong in research, um, you know, not considering your, considering your entire population. So um, yeah, Sarah, Sarah's nodding her head. I think you, you heard about this, right? It was peer reviewed, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Like reviewers said, sure, this is fair. And an editor said, sure, let's publish this. That's when the thing. Article. I thought you meant news article because it sounded no, like a legitimate journal article. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, I forget which journal it was, but like AM, the Journal of American Medical Association recently published something saying like, no doctor is racist, therefore structural racism doesn't exist, right? So our medical journals are not quite caught up with um, the reality of, you know, people's lives in 2021. That say. also kind of highlights clearly their, whoever they have doing those reviews can't, I would assume is predominantly male and probably predominantly white if those sorts of things are getting through peer review kind of like no problem. Right. And it speaks to another point that Sarah made. And I think, you know, when we talk about that there should be equality and, you know, who you're recruiting, at least, you know, at the bare minimum with, with gender um, for certain studies. And I think you mentioned, Sarah, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to recruit, but then there should be mechanisms in place by which organizations recognize that it is difficult and there should be funding to help recruit. There should be resources available to help do this. You know, you should learn in graduate school, okay, where do I go? How do I recruit people? What is ethically appropriate? Um, and not to say that those things don't exist, but I think more emphasis needs to be played on inclusivity and diversity. And, you know, I think a couple other things that can be done involve getting leadership support. So having leaders who are male or female supporting their junior female colleagues or other colleagues, you know, so mentoring them towards leadership and giving them credit when credit is due in front of other colleagues, I think can really start help to build up women, especially. Um, and then I think there's a general lack of how to achieve these things as a female or, you know, a student of otherness. Um, 
in academia. I know, you know, in my graduate program, we had great courses and we had a student chapter of HFES, but no one sat down and taught me, how do I negotiate? How do I negotiate pay raises? How do I negotiate more responsibility? How do I negotiate for resources? What positions do I apply for? I think there's a relatively well-known study and I, I wish I had looked it up, but known, but men will apply more for positions that they meet less qualifications for than women. Um, you know, we're more likely to look at something and say, eh, I don't think I'm going to meet all the qualifications. I'm not going to apply where typically men will just apply for those things. And so we need to be mentored and, and it, it doesn't only need to be women. All students need to be mentored on this, but you know, what positions do I apply for? What does leadership look like and what skills are required for leadership? How can I start honing in on those skills now? Um, and educating early. And I think, you know, this can be done in courses. It can be done through society chapters. It can be done through webinars. Um, you know, Cedars was really great. They, they started this women's leadership program where you apply and you get in and then you're mentored by um, leaders at the institution, but they also bring in additional leaders. And I think we talk about things like, how do you deal with an ethical issue? Um, how do you manage talking to a reporter when they want to publish your research study um, to a news outlet. And so all of these are really important skill sets that I think we need to be educating people on really, really early and um, supporting people. And I think that's tough, but there's there's the research side of things that needs, to, <laughs> needs some work. But I think we also need to be educating the people who are going to be becoming the next set of leaders um, on how to actually get there. I definitely agree. I think uh, some of these things that we do learn just from experience or observation, just like by observing our mentors, but I do think that there is a need for like a more formalized mechanism of like introducing that education early on to graduate students, especially, you know, women and other minority graduate students, right? So um, yeah, um, definitely needed and definitely lacking in a lot of institutions maybe now there now i'm starting to hear more about um people who are advocating for this but it's i feel like it's still very early and not as much as we, we actually need yeah. and i think another thing is like educating everyone on these biases because i i watched um the the documentary, I think it's called Picture a Scientist, um, but it's yeah. on women in STEM. And one of the statistics that they provided was, or one of the studies that they talked about was where they gave two resumes for, um, I think it was a lab manager position. The resumes were exactly the same. One of them was named Jennifer and one of them was named John. Maybe the names are wrong, but basically one was a man, one was a woman. And the men were consistently rated as like more capable, more likely to get the job when everything else was exactly the same. And I think if people, people don't know necessarily that they might be perceiving someone in a different way because of their gender. So like just letting people know that this is a thing that happens, it's just kind of an inherent bias that we have because of the way that society has been as we've kind of grown up. Um, so that they can become aware of those things and try and try and account for that in some way.
Yeah, so even with that story about the, the professionalism thing, so that is also a bias that people in society have, like what does it mean to be professional? And then the criteria vary a lot for women and for different races. <laughs> that, that itself, like is by itself is a bias that people have. And then that gets sort of included or built into that research, even though you would think that, you know, some people can evaluate professionalism in an objective way, but it, it doesn't seem that they can. Um, so yeah, um, I think you uh, did talk a bit about um, gender issues in your own field of study um, or academia in general, but maybe you can give some examples on how you can uh, eliminate or mitigate some of these gender uh, biases that exist in your research, and also um, possibly how they could interact with other um, with other identities, and how we can possibly um, make this make our research more equitable for different groups. So, yeah, I think I did want to touch on you know a, another gender issue, which I think. Sarah also talked about this, but the idea that there's very few women in leadership positions in academic medical centers or in academic positions at all. But, you know, what's interesting is I think movement is happening and shifting, but we're not there yet. So, for example, in my field in surgery, despite more women entering into medical school and residency, you know, in fact, it's almost equitable or equivalent now. It's it's about fifty percent of first year medical students are women, um, and women have compromised forty percent of general surgery residency programs, which is you know great to see. But I think a twenty twenty journal article found that twenty eight of three hundred and fifty four academic surgical departments. Uh, chair positions were held by women. So that's just under 8%. So you can see that, you know, early, early, we're starting to become a little bit more equal, you know, in terms of gender differences, we're seeing more women enter into medical school, more women enter into residencies, but getting to those leadership positions is really, really tough. Um, so I just kind of wanted to put some numbers behind that. You know, when I think of how we can use our human factors, knowledge and skills to address these issues, I, I go back to the idea that when we think about research, we think about things critically, we're constantly testing, we're retesting, and we're reevaluating our environments. You know, we're adapting to the ever-changing nature of whatever environment that we're studying. And I think we have to think about our society as this ever-changing, adapting environment. And you know, ultimately human factors involve studying how humans interact with complex systems and complex systems involve different types of humans that have different sexes, races, genders, ages, cultures, you name it. And all of those interactions are going to result in different processes and different outcomes. And so if we're not trying to understand all of those different interactions, I don't think we're really doing due diligence. And it's tough. It's really tough. You're not going to be able to recruit hundred participants of every single group for a particular study, and that may not be necessary. But when we're asking questions involving human performance, you know, in surgery, for example, 
we need to be considering all of the potential users and how their different backgrounds or cultures may interact. And I think, you know, human factors professionals are uniquely qualified because we should be thinking about all of these things all of the time. Are we? Not not always. I think, you know, sometimes our motivations are stifled by funding, um, are stifled by pressure to publish, um, you know, get those grants. And that's why I keep going back to this idea that it needs to be top down. We need to be, you know, finding ways to promote this type of work and say that this is the way it needs to go. As Sarah alluded to, we can't be just accepting papers that aren't making a rigorous effort to be more inclusive and to demonstrate differences or findings as they relate to sex or gender differences, for example. Um, so, you know, I think it's really honing in on what we study as a group and, and kind of going back to the basics and understanding that we're studying systems. And there's all these different types of humans in these systems. Um, but yeah. You know if that study looked at orthopedic surgery or just general surgery? The one about um, the chairs? Mm -hmm. I think it was academic surgical department chairs. So probably everybody. Because a lot of the orthopedic tools are not usable for the average woman. They're Absolutely. like the bone weigh 50 pounds and they're big. And so I had a colleague who did that for her graduate work, um, right? And there's no market incentive to, to change that, but it's a, one of the biggest barriers to women in, in orthopedic surgery beyond the cultural, we always blame culture, but like there's a, just a total mismatch between the tool and the um, surgeon and also would exclude smaller men, especially Asian men who are on average about the same size as the average European woman, right? Like it's not just, yeah. So yeah, I think it's really important to think about those intersections of identity. And like, you know, as Tara was talking about, like, you know, we're in a society, we have to think about how society functions and change it. And it is like, I feel like because I was mentored only by men, I was very much socialized into operating and surviving in a way that is socialized very male, um, at least in the U.S. context, like very male. And I found myself like mentoring younger women to act like that. And then I realized like, I'm asking them to change all of who they are to exist in this toxic environment. Instead, I should be changing this environment. And so, right, like, what are the, what are those intangible kind of cultural pieces that are so unwelcoming to women or people of color or, you know, like all of the various diversity. So I do a lot of disability work, right? And so like some, some of it's really obvious, like if there's a step up to get in the building, no one who uses a wheelchair can come in your building. And that is most of Harvard right, is a step up, is completely inaccessible. Um, and Tufts, actually both schools uh, are completely inaccessible. And right, and so like, but that's an obvious thing. Like how do you, but how do you think about like neurodiversity or mental health conditions and how that interacts with the environment? And then things like race, right? So Title IX in the US protects women from gender harassment or, or sex, sex or gender-based harassment. But what happens when it's racial harassment and you're the same sex or the same gender, right? There's no mechanism for protection there. And so starting to think about like, 
you know, these intersections and I'm as a white woman, like how am I propagating these problematic systems and structures of whiteness as I'm still like fighting the patriarchy and trying to like break through the glass ceiling, right? And like protect my, now that I'm in a professor role but I have no power because I'm junior, like, right? I'm trying to protect my younger, my students from the patriarchy while also, you know, and it's, it, it just like feels like we're lost in this system and that I'm mostly just frustrated all of the time because I feel like I should have power and I have none. And I feel like, I feel like I should fix things and I can't. And that might just be being a millennial and being like caught between the, you know, the boomers and the Gen Zs who are like, the Gen Zs are going to burn it down. And so there's a, there's a great Canadian study that looked like a massive population and found one of the best predictors of neck and shoulder pain, like er, what we would think would be like ergonomic pain with sexual harassment in the workplace. Right. So these experiences of harassment, right. We, we know affect your physical pain. Um, because as you're being sexually harassed, you're going to do, you do this and then you're like typing and right. But we also know a whole bunch about how like racial harassment affects the physical body, right? Like it affects, like it changes your DNA, right? Over time. And so you can chase it generationally, but also like birth outcomes and right. We see this massive disparity in birth outcomes in the U.S. racial disparity in birth outcomes, right? It's like experiences of racism, over time cause all of these downstream health effects. And so it's not just like, we're like, oh, it's unfair. Like we should have diverse professors or we should have diverse CEOs. It's like, no, we're actually like harming people, like people's physical health and mental health. But like we see, we have like proof that it's physical as well. Yeah, it's interesting to also think about that physical ergonomic side of things. So, I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned sexual harassment in the work, workplace, but also I do think that society and like men in general do have this sort of sense of entitlement over women's bodies where they feel like they can like violate your physical or personal space in a way so that could also be um you know correlated with how women try to like make themselves themselves away yeah yeah so there's also a lot of added stress that comes from all of the other stuff that we have to kind of monitor um in this sort of like professionalism realm like when I'm writing an email I check the email several times did I use too many exclamation marks oh my gosh yeah or Or do I I sound too too much yeah Yeah. um like do I sound friendly enough when I'm asking for something or do I sound demanding and I feel like that all that extra like stress that comes along with thinking about these things that men probably don't think about um also adds to maybe the um physical strain I guess yeah 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 I mean I have heard the term minority stress but I don't know if it's applicable like I haven't read a lot of the research on it but yeah if you're a woman of color I feel like it's also you know even compounded yeah compounded yeah I feel like I'm the killjoy always. Like people come to me with these things and because, and like want to look at my cool technology and it's like, if it's VR, I'm like, most women can't use VR headsets, right? Get vertigo or not, right? Exoskeletons. I can't tell you how many times people have wanted to show me an exoskeleton and I've looked at it and go, I won't fit me. Like, yeah, we, we, it like, we shrunk, like we have like a five foot four version. I'm like, it's not going to fit me. And then they force me to put it on. And of course it doesn't fit my shoulders. 
and it doesn't fit my chest. And I was like, did you, were you aware that like a large percentage of the population has breasts? Right. And I showed them my, (laughs) I buy a women's backpack, right? Like the the straps are very different. Like they curve, right? Like, you know, and so things like that and exoskeletons in the work are meant to like help smaller people who are at risk of injury, not get injured, but then they design them for like, it, you know, it's so backwards. So my, what I've decided to do is to teach and to teach primarily undergrads and to get them thinking about these things before they go into the workplace. Because someday they're going to be in a boardroom and it's unrealistic that they're going to have representation in that board, in that room, right? They're not going to have one. They're not going to, like, there's just, you know, you've got a hundred people, you're still not going to have one of each. And so I want my student to raise the flag that goes like, ooh, that could be harmful to this group of people, right? Like, ooh, that looks like a blackface filter. Maybe we shouldn't do that, you know? So if we teach them young, (laughs) maybe... I, I love that. That's so important. And I think it's lacking so much right now. And I'm so glad that you're doing that, Sarah, <laughs> um, because you make such an important point, right? Because it's the people who, you know, end up getting to the stage where they develop these technologies that are supposed to be helpful. They're intended to be useful, but they don't have, you know, like you said, whether it's representation or not, or at least somebody who's going to say, hold up, I don't know if it's going to work for that group. Um, you know, it, it reminded me when you talked about the idea that people don't even consider that women have breasts, we're doing this study now that what, what does a mannequin look like if you're going to practice CPR? Have any of you guys seen mannequins with breasts? Nope. And if you're going to defibrillate them, you have to put on pads and pads go underneath the breast. And if you don't practice doing that, how are you going to be prepared to do it? You know, and it's like, we have had technologies out there that are supposed to be helpful. And we've trained how many doctors or how many healthcare professionals on how to perform CPR or defibrillation using what looks like a 19 year old boy, you know, like, does that represent our population at all? Any of our population? No, especially not in the United States. So, you know, I think and educating, if somebody, if one person who had been on the committee in the boardroom when they presented, hey, this is our mannequin to rep- represent every person then in America, was like, oh, you know, I don't think that represents even 80% of America. You know, maybe things would have been different. And so I, I think Sarah brings up such an important point that it's education early, but I think we need the resources and support or from an organization standpoint or from a societal standpoint to make sure that those things happens. I think your course, Sarah, needs to be at every institution in the United States. You know, like this, it shouldn't just be unique to your program. Should push this book because it was written by uh, three people from HFES. Absolutely. Advancing Diversity, Inclusion, and Social Justice Through Human Systems Engineering, edited by Rod Roscoe, Aaron Chu, and Abigail Holdridge. Awesome. Tara, but do you know what your family leave policies are? Like, I don't know off the top of my head. I want to say they're pretty good compared to other industries. Yeah. But, yeah. Some, some residency programs won't let you have time to, rest, uh, to pump. And so, and you think about it, like, yeah, it would be rough if you're doing like an eight hour surgery. I don't know how you navigate that. 
but the typical resident could probably fit it into their day with accommodations. I think that's one of those things that ends up affecting why we don't have as many people in leadership positions because you have people who are interested and you know it's like maybe gender equal there and people who get into residency sure but then they don't have like there are these restrictions or they don't have the ability to kind of do the things they need to do and and continue to advance their career the other thing that always struck me in academic medicine was footwear (laughs) it's like for some reason a lot of the women clinicians wear heels when they're not in the OR and so they can't walk as fast as their male colleagues despite that's really shorter and and I always like I don't get it you don't like you're in a job where you don't have to do this you could wear (laughs) crocs like no right right and it was, yeah, and like, you can't keep up. I had, a, I had a female boss at HP who taught me, told me this. She was like, never wear heels because you can't keep up with them. And it just makes, like, it propagates the problem. And she's like, and your feet hurt. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. But, but it's also it's, part of professionalism though. <laughs> like a lot of people think, oh, you have to wear heels as a woman to look professional. But yeah. And you risk falling. Can't Twisting walk your ankle. Sore right. heels. Like, yeah. That's a really interesting point. I'd be curious. I wonder if there's been studies. Yeah, I want to like specifically steward in academic medicine because it, yeah. I don't get it. Like, <laughs> yeah, and that's such a good point because they, you know, in surgery, they're not wearing heels, obviously. People wearing Crocs, sneakers. Uh, a lot of male surgeons wear cowboy boots, which I always find fascinating to me. Um, <laughs> I've seen that a handful of times. And never would have thought, but not in clinic when they're in clinic, it's very different, you know, it's, and, and I think that's something too, about the professionalism thing, especially in healthcare, when you're patient facing, you know, it's very difficult to, I think, be your most comfortable self, um, where, especially when the organization places demands on what you should wear and how you should act and how your hair should be and how long your skirt needs to be. And, you know, things like that. It's, it, it almost puts you into, okay, here's another set of rules and things I have to think about when I'm getting ready every day. Um, which is just like this mental process you're going through before you even start your day, right? You're like, wait, is, is this appropriate? Do I, is my nail polish? too pink or whatever, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen specific rules about that, but I think this professionalism thing, as you guys alluded to with the email too, is just, we're constantly thinking like, am I professional enough? Am I going to be perceived as professional and responsible and competent? And that's just a lot to deal with. Yeah. And post pandemic, a lot of us don't want to go back to that. Right. Mm -mm. I'm not looking forward to wondering if I should be wearing makeup or straightening my hair. My politics in 2020 were let women be ugly. And I think they will probably be my 2021 politics as well. Just let women be ugly. Yeah. But the thing that's frustrating is it shouldn't be, it's not ugly, right? It's like, let us be ourselves. And society says that we need makeup and to straighten our hair and to wear a nice blouse and a bra to be pretty and 
professional, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's like the thing with the email. I, I found myself coaching one of my research assistants. I was like, let me read your email before you send it. And I was like, okay, don't say sorry. Like, let's take this out. Get rid of the exclamation point. D- don't explain what you're doing. Just no say you're doing you it. Can. Like, yeah, like that. Get rid of no worries. Like just, you know, <laughs> and, and I was, you know, talking to a, a friend and colleague about this and she was like, but it shouldn't matter how we express ourselves. We're, we're changing how we're expressing ourselves to be perceived on an even playing field, but I shouldn't be perceived any less than because I say, Hey, exclamation point, how's your day going? You know, like it's, it's this battle that we're constantly like, okay, how much of myself do I be? How much do I take out? How do I be perceived as professional all the time? And it's, it's exhausting. This was such an interesting and insightful discussion. Thank you to Dr. Cohen and Dr. Coppola for taking the time to talk to us. We've certainly learned a lot and we think it's important to continue these conversations so that we can see real and meaningful change. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed our podcast and stay tuned for another episode of HVIC Talks.